rules are made to be broken. At least that seems to be the common sentiment this time of year as we enter into a new year. And we subsequently make what we call New Year's resolutions. And then we stop our New Year's resolutions. Maybe this is a practice that you have regularly done throughout your life. Maybe you are in the camp that says, I don't, I don't need to do, to make New Year's resolutions. That's not really my thing. Maybe you make them every year and you try and you fail. Maybe you try and succeed. Maybe you should at least just consider trying for once. Regardless, this is certainly a time of year when many are thinking about ways to improve their life in the coming year. In fact, nearly 40% of people make New Year's resolutions, yet only 9% stick with them. This is down from 2007 when nearly 12% of people stuck to their resolutions. 80% of all New Year's resolutions fail across the board, though 46% of adults do stick with their resolutions for at least six months. Diet at 33% and exercise at 39% are by far the most common resolutions. And Friday is a particularly popular day for goal setters to drop their resolutions. I don't know why. I think for me, it's that I get to Thursday, I've worked really hard, I need to reward myself. I don't share these statistics to discourage you from making New Year's resolutions. I share these statistics to demonstrate just how frail and undependable we really are. It's a great way to start 2024, right? To go to church and be told that you are frail and you are undependable. Despite our so-called willpower... How many times have we failed at New Year's resolutions? Maybe let's take it a step further. How many promises have you broken throughout your life? How many promises did you break in 2023? How many times have we not followed through as we should? How many times were we simply late to an event because of our own inherent selfishness? How many times have we had to make up a few days on our Bible reading plan because we slacked off? Generally speaking, I don't think that we have a great track record as humans when it comes to keeping our word, making good on our promises, and following through on our resolutions, whether for the new year or just in general. Now, this is not a self-help TED Talk where I intend to provide you with 24 ways to improve your life in 2024. A new year does not, in fact, bring about a new you. Instead, we should simply face the grim reality of sin and death. I think that's how we should start the new year. Let's face the reality of sin and death. But let's face it with confidence because we are a people with a glorious, eternal hope who belong to a glorious, promise-keeping Savior 
who makes all things new, including us. Why do we fail at our resolutions? Why is there a history of promise breaking? The answer is because we are inherently promise breakers. Why are we inherently promise breakers? Because we are inherently sinful. The reason we fail at our New Year's resolutions is because we're sinful. Romans 3.10 says, None is righteous, no, not one. Verse 11, No one understands, no one seeks for God. Jeremiah 17.9, the, the New King James says it this way, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Sinful people don't keep their word. Sinful people break promises and fall through on things like resolutions. You see, this is just an example to help us see how inherently flawed we are due to our sin nature. Because when we see and we understand how flawed, frail, and sinful that we really are, we gain a greater understanding of just how great Jesus is. Jesus has never broken a promise. In fact, he is the perfect fulfillment of God's greatest promises, which we will consider this morning. So if you have not done so already, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. Revelation is the final letter written in the Christian Bible, so it's very easy to find. Go to the end. Revelation chapter 21. The primary focus of our time together will be verses 5 and 6, and then actually a number of other passages that we're going to cover this morning. However, for the sake of context, I'm going to read this morning verses 1 through 8. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. Hear now the word of God. For the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen? Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And behold, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. 
Lord, add to the reading of your word by giving us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to know, and hearts to understand. Amen. Now, as we consider Jesus' statement from the throne room here in Revelation 21, I want us to first consider a few things about the book of Revelation, and then we'll do just kind of throughout the sermon, but especially right after that, we'll do uh, just a quick gospel primer of sorts of on what we as Christians believe about the gospel. And then we're going to transition, and we're going to see how the new creation described in Revelation 21 is not a far-off event solely in the future, but a present reality as we march towards the wedding feast when Jesus presents his bride whole and blameless before the Father. Now, up to this point in chapter 21, the apostle uh, here in the Apostle John's letter titled Revelation, John has depicted a number of things for us. And one of the most important things in this depiction of what is what takes place in the throne room as Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father following his death and resurrection. Brad actually referenced this for us a few weeks ago. You see, in Revelation chapter 4, the Apostle John is, is taken to the throne room of heaven. He's given a very real vision of what is taking place in the presence of God. And then in Revelation chapter 5, the Apostle is looking around the throne room and there's a great commotion because no one is worthy to open the scroll and it's seven seals. Now, for more information on what the seven seals are, you can talk to Dave Schwingle after the service. Again, Dave Schwingle. And amidst this commotion, John actually begins to weep because he sees no one worthy. No one is worthy. But then one of the elders in the throne room says to John, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seals. And so as John turns to see this announced lion as he enters the room, John, as he turns, he sees a lamb. As though it had been slain. You see, the Lamb is the Lion of Judah. He is the sacrifice the nations need. And He alone is worthy to open the seal. What John is seeing in this vision is Jesus' triumphant entrance into the throne room after He ascends to the Father following His resurrection. Those in heaven saw the lion return triumphant, having conquered sin and death. But John sees a lamb, the perfect lamb who stood in his place as a sacrifice for John's sin. The atoning sacrifice for all the people of God. So now we fast forward to Revelation 21. Again, for everything in the middle, see Dave. The Lamb is on the throne. He is promising a new heaven and earth. The place where God will dwell with man. 
He will wipe all of their tears away. There will be no more mourning. There will be no more crying. There will be no more pain. How do we know this? Because the Lion of Judah says so. He says, Behold, I am making all things new. Not, I will make things new. I am making all things new. Now, here's a question. Will everything be made new with finality when Jesus returns? Yes. A day is coming and we await with eager expectation declaring, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We are awaiting the second Advent. Here's the second question. Has that process already begun as the Lamb rules from His throne and makes all things new now? And the answer is yes. And if you are a Christian, you are proof that the Lamb is making all things new now. Philippians chapter 2 tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Meaning that being a Christian and growing in Jesus is not solely an instantaneous thing, nor is it solely a future event. It is an ongoing process where we experience internally the now and not yet. As a Christian, it is true to say, God has saved me. I am saved by grace through faith in Jesus. I am a new creation. It is also true to say that God is saving me, that I'm a work in progress, that I'm working out my salvation each and every day. I am being made new. And it is also true that one day in the presence of God, my salvation will be complete. There will be a finality to my salvation when God resurrects our bodies and we are glorified body and soul. We will be made new. So when we say that the new creation is a present reality, we are not denying the coming finality of our salvation and the restoration of creation that will be brought about by the second advent, the second coming of Jesus. What we are saying is that it is in process. Jesus is making all things new. Jesus is making a new creation. In fact, the theme of new creation is found all throughout the Bible. This should not come as a surprise to us. God is the God who makes all things new. I want to take a few minutes and and prove it to you, uh, uh, starting at the beginning and highlighting the different things that God has made new, and that He is making new, that he, he says He will make new. I believe this will offer us further confidence that the Lamb making all things new is indeed a present reality that leads to a clear and final conclusion. In the beginning... From the beginning, God has made new things. You see, in Genesis, the very first book of the Christian Bible, we actually see a new creation from the beginning. 
Now, I'm distinguishing this new creation from from the overarching theme of new creation in our final restoration. We might call this a brand new creation. Literally, in the beginning, God took nothing and he made something. He made new things. Genesis 1 and 2, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then it continues, Genesis 1 and 2, we see the details of creation as God creates all of the earth's inhabitants as He separates the land and the sky, the night from the day, the waters from the land, and He creates our first parents, Adam and Eve. And in Genesis chapter 3, as Adam and Eve fall and are separate, and they, and they separate all of humanity from God, we still see a promise that God will make all things new once again. The promise of Genesis 3.15, the promise that the seed of woman would crush the serpent, this is ultimately a promise that creation, including and most importantly, the people God created and called to himself, would be made New Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise. This is the first glimpse into God's promise to redeem. Genesis 3.15 is often called the proto uh, uh, euangelium. Did I say that right, Jared? Close enough? Close enough with the Greek? Meaning first gospel first gospel it's the first time that there is a promise that all things are going to change and this promise ultimately points to jesus as he is the one who defeated the serpent he was wounded for our transgressions he was bruised for our iniquity from the beginning we have seen the god who makes new creations he makes new things What else does he make new? God's promise and plan of new creation is woven all throughout the Old Testament. We see this, secondly, in a new people. We see this in a new people. You see, creation and new creation are not solely Genesis and New Testament themes. You see, this has always been the plan and the promise. And it is seen in a new people called in righteousness by a new servant. Consider Isaiah 42, verses 5 through 9. See, the first four verses of Isaiah 42 speak of a coming servant who will bring forth justice to the nations. And in verses 5 through 9, we're told that this servant will accomplish. We are told what this servant will accomplish. Verse 5. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it. Again, we're seeing that, that creation theme repeated who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare 
before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So this servant is given as a light for the nations. And it is through this servant that the nations will then give glory to God alone. For there is no other who is worthy of glory. It is through this servant that the prisoners are set free. That those in darkness see the light. This chosen servant who we know to be Jesus our Messiah. He is indeed a light to the nations. And through Him, old things have passed away. It is through Him that our sins are forgiven and the old ways of regular sacrifice are no more. It is He who the law pointed to. He is the sign that God is making a new people for Himself. And it is through Him we will see, if we keep reading Isaiah 42, that the praise of the Lord will fill the earth. A new people will sing a new song. Why? Because of Jesus. How? Well, we continue. The prophet Jeremiah tells us that this new people are joined together by a new covenant. Jeremiah 31. Uh, in J- Jeremiah 31, we're going to go... Uh, Start in verse 31 and go down to verse 34. But I would encourage you to read uh, the entire passage, especially verses 31 through 40. But look at verse 31. Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. What is the new covenant promise? That we would know God and be known by him. And God will forgive our iniquity and remember our sins no more. It's the promise of the new covenant. Remember, God was regularly remembering the sin of Israel throughout the Old Testament. This is why regular sacrifice had to be made. Uh, John talked a little bit about this in our prayer time this morning. Regular sacrifice had to be made because a sufficient and permanent sacrifice had not been made. The people of God had to offer regular sacrifices as atonement for their sin. God was regularly remembering the sin of his people in the old covenant. But the promise of the new covenant is that God will remember our sin no more. God will remember our sin no more. And this will be accomplished through his chosen servant who establishes a new people. So we have a brand new creation in Genesis. 
where we also see there's a new promise. This new promise results in a new people, and this new people are brought into a new covenant. How are these people made new and brought into this new covenant? The answer is that God gives them new hearts. God gives them new hearts. Consider Ezekiel 36, 22 through 28. Our responsive reading this morning was from verses 24 through 28. I'm going to back up. I'll start in verse 22. And I encourage you to read the whole chapter in context, or at least verses 22 through 32. But Ezekiel 36, verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned, profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Remember, Revelation 21, the one who sits on the throne is making all things new. We're promised all throughout the Bible, new people, new covenant, new hearts. If you ever wonder... Have I done enough to be a Christian? The answer is emphatically no. You have not done enough to be a Christian. But the one who sits on the throne has done enough. He is the one who makes all things new, including our hearts of stone. You didn't just go to the store And buy a heart of flesh. There's no rollback section for new hearts. The one who is on the throne. Make things new. Including our hearts of stone. If you are a Christian. You have been given a new heart. A heart of flesh. Turned towards God. Not a heart of stone. That is hostile to God. Your hope is not in what you have done, but in what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do. What is the result of this new people that are brought into a new covenant and given new hope, given new hearts, and also a new hope? That would also work. The result is a, a new aeon or a new age. And in this new age, the promises of the Old Testament or accomplished. You see, when we read the New Testament, we find uh, further clarity to the hope of the new creation. Let's do, a, let's do a little comparison. In Jeremiah, God promises a new covenant. And in Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 23, we learn that Jesus' blood brings to fruition that promised new covenant. 
You see, in this new age, there is a new covenant in blood. There is a new covenant in blood. In Luke 22, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper during the Passover. Look at what he says to his disciples in Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 23. He tells them, and when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. All right. Revelation 21, Jesus sits on the throne and says, I am making all things new. How has he made all things new? And the answer is by shedding his blood for the remission of sin. By being the lamb standing before John in chapter 5 of Revelation as though he had been slain. By being the only one worthy of glory, the only one worthy of worship, the only one worthy of honor. This new covenant in blood is a permanent covenant that seals a new people in Christ. This new covenant in blood is a permanent covenant that seals a new people in Christ. God's promise in Isaiah that old things have passed, behold, new things have come, is fulfilled in a new people who belong to Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verses 16 through 21, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We are made new. New hearts given to a new people sealed in a new covenant accomplished in Jesus. The one on the throne who makes all things new. Now, new people, new hearts sealed with a new covenant. How do we see and experience this in our lives? Remember, Before conversion, before new birth, we are hostile to God. We have hearts of stone. We are enemies. We we are not good and we do not seek after God. That's before conversion. 
then God, who is rich in mercy, makes us alive. That's what Ephesians chapter 2 teaches, teaches us. We are dead in our sins. Brothers and sisters, hearts of stone do not beat with life. And as we are made alive, as our hearts of stone are turned to hearts of flesh, beloved, it is with our new hearts that we believe and are justified. It's Romans 10, verse 10. Prior to this new birth, we have no affection for God. We have no desire to love Him. We have no desire to trust Him. We have no desire to obey Him. But now, our new hearts beat for Him. Regarding the assurance of salvation, R.C. Sproul had this to say. This is lengthy. I think it's worthwhile, so bear with me. R.C. Sproul had this to say regarding the assurance of our salvation. Quote, People who are struggling with their assurance of salvation often approach me and ask, How can I know I am saved? In response, I ask them three questions. First, I ask, Do you love Jesus perfectly? Every person to whom I have asked that question has responded candidly, No, I don't. That's why they are not sure of the state of their souls. They know there are deficiencies in their affection for Christ because they know that if they loved Christ perfectly, they would obey Him perfectly. Second, when a person acknowledges that he doesn't love Jesus perfectly, I ask, do you love Him as much as you ought to? The person usually gives me a strange look and says, well, no, of course I don't. And that's right. If the answer to the first question is no, the answer to the question has to be no, because we're supposed to love Him perfectly, but we don't. Therein lies the tension that we experience about our salvation. Third, I ask, well, do you love Jesus at all? And before the per- person answers, I usually add that I'm asking about his love for the biblical Christ, the Christ whom we encounter in the pages of Holy Scripture. When I ask people, do you love Jesus at all? I'm not asking whether they love a Christ who is a hero for kids or a Christ who is a good moral teacher. I'm asking whether they love the Christ who appears in Scripture. Now, if someone can say yes to that third question, that's where theology comes in. Consider this question. Is it possible for an unregenerate person to have any true affection for Christ? My answer is no. Affection for Christ is a result of the Spirit's work. That is what regeneration is all about. God the Holy Spirit changes the disposition of our souls and the inclination of our hearts. Before regeneration, we are cold, hostile, or indifferent to the things of God. Love for God is kindled by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit who pours the love of God into our hearts. So if a person can answer yes when I ask whether he has an affection for Christ, even though he may not love Jesus as much as he ought to, he may not love him perfectly, that assures me the Spirit has done this transforming work in his soul. This is so because we do not have the power in our flesh to conjure up any true affection for Jesus Christ, end quote. If you love Jesus, it is because Jesus has made you new. As we see this theme of newness and new creation all throughout the pages of Scripture, 
The promises of God are fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus. And He is the one who makes all things new. So, that was a lot. We've covered a lot. I've used the word new more times in a sermon than I can ever remember. What we learn from Revelation 21 and from all of Scripture is this. The new creation is not a far-off event solely in the future, but a present reality that shapes how we worship God, live in this world, and grow in the likeness of Jesus. The new creation is not a far-off event solely in the future, but a present reality that shapes how we worship God, live in this world, and grow in the likeness of Jesus. I want to make three statements that support and clarify this idea, and then I want to offer us two points of application uh, for us to walk away with today in light of this present reality. Three statements that support and clarify this central idea. What's the central idea? That the new creation is not solely this far-off event in the future, but is a present reality that we live in today. Number one, Jesus rules the world now. Jesus rules the world now. If you want to put in parentheses, and he's going to continue to rule, and there's going to be a finality to that rule. But Jesus rules the world now. It is true that we are waiting for Jesus to return in power and glory. As we have celebrated the first advent all throughout the month of December, we await the second advent when Jesus will return to destroy the final enemy and dwell with us forever. We have a hope that is in the future, yes. While this advent is in our future, what we are not waiting for is for Jesus to exercise his authority from heaven. He rules the world now. He rules all creation now. And he upholds it by the very power of his word. That's Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. Will Jesus return? Yes. Will he rule with finality as the dwelling place of God will be with man? Yes. And is he sovereign now and ruling now? The answer is yes. We've sung this multiple times throughout the month of December, including this morning. He rules the world with truth and grace. And he makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. Jesus rules the world now. And as he rules now, Jesus is making all things new now. And your salvation is proof. The fact that you came here this morning to worship God because your new heart beats actions for God is proof that Jesus is making all things new right now. He has made you new. And your present newness of life is just part one. You are made new. Jesus is making you new. And you will be made new. And you can have confidence and assurance that this is true because the Lamb who is worthy has said from His throne, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, 
I am the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. It is done. Jesus is making all things new. Number three, Jesus is making a new community for his new people. Consider Revelation chapter 7. In chapter 5, we see the Lion of Judah, the Lamb who is worthy. And in Revelation 7, we see the people who the Lamb was slain for. Revelation 7, 9 through 12. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Throughout the Old Testament, in the passages that we've looked at this morning, the promises of new creation, we find that this promise was not solely for one ethnic group. It's for nations. God is saving a people for Himself from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. We belong to a new race, a new people, not defined by the color of our skin or the languages that we speak or the cultural traditions we may have or what type of house that we live in or what kind of job we have or what kind of car we drive but defined by our common bond that we have been bought by the blood of Jesus, that through this new covenant we have been given new hearts that beat affectionately for God. So we belong to a new community, a global community of saints who have been made new. The bride of Christ, the church. Now here's the thing. God has and is saving a global people. But we can't all go to church together. Because we're scattered throughout the earth. So this new community, this global community, this, this community of nations, it is expressed in practice within the local church. When we as Emmanuel Bible Church gather to worship the risen Christ, we are united with gospel preaching churches in the Philippines. But though we are united in the gospel, we, we are not practically living among one another in community. So we are united with all Christians everywhere for all of time, but we are joined in time and space to a community of believers as a local church where we worship God and obey His commands together. And this expression of the local church is a taste of what heaven will be like. When people from all nations, tribes, and tongues worship God together for all eternity. When there is no division. When there is no uh, war. When, there are, when, when, when our common bond is greater than any differences we may have. Jesus rules the world now. He is making new now. And He is making a new community for His new people. And we see this most vividly today within the local church. So as we close, I want I want to make two points of application for us. So because Jesus is making all things new, because the lamb sits on the throne, the lamb who was slain for the remission of our sins, because he reigns. Two points of application. Number one, there is no excuse for our lack of holiness and worship. 
There is no excuse for our lack of holiness and worship. Romans 12, 1 through 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may be, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We must grow in holiness. We must endeavor to be more like Jesus. But we do this because we know that God will accomplish this in us. Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those whom he called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Beloved, there is no excuse for our lack of holiness. There is no excuse for our lack of worship. Our resolution every year ought to be this. Be more like Jesus. Be more like Jesus. We're not arguing that we will never sin or never struggle. But the reality is we ought to be growing in holiness slowly but surely each and every day. Why? Because Jesus makes old things new. Because Jesus has turned our hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. We should be worshiping Jesus every single day because he is worthy of our worship. Every aspect of our life is worship, whether we worship the risen Christ in all that we do or we worship an idol. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. All of life is worship. And I would contend we can enjoy the good things of life in a worshipful way with grateful hearts to God. But all of life is worship. We either worship Jesus, the lamb on the throne, or we worship some idol that we have made. There is no excuse. But beloved, while there is no excuse, there is great comfort and encouragement knowing that God will make us like Jesus. That's our second point of application. God will make us like Jesus. You see, there's a tension here. Is sanctification, our growth in holiness, our endeavor to be more like Jesus, is sanctification solely a work of God or is it a cooperative effort between God and man? And the answer is yes. I've done that a lot this morning. The answer is yes. In every sense of the word, sanctification is a work of God. He will make us like Christ. That's the promise of Romans 8. And as He makes us like Christ, He invites us to endeavor in holiness. Present yourself as an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to the Lord. So while we are without excuse, we also have a tremendous comfort that God will accomplish what He has called us to do. Faithful is He that has called, called you that will also do it. Beloved, we can wake up every morning with joy and gladness in our hearts because Jesus rules it all. We can endeavor to grow in holiness, to, to, to flee from our sin and be more like Jesus each and every day because Jesus sits on the throne.
We can enter into 2024 with confidence and boldness and excitement and eagerness because Jesus reigns in 2024 just as He has for all of creation, for all of time. Jesus was the Lord of 2023. He will remain the Lord in 2024. And I don't know if you know this or not, but in 2024, there's an election coming up. And I don't know about you, but when Brad and I were praying about this sermon last night, that was at the forefront of our mind. Here comes another thing, right? 2020 was COVID and we had an election year. Here we are, 2024, another election year. Do you know what hasn't changed? Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is on the throne. So, we can wake up tomorrow morning in a new year. And the new year hasn't brought about a new you. Jesus has brought about a new you. When he turned your heart of stone to a heart of flesh. So live like Jesus. Albeit imperfectly, there's that tension. We're not, we're not denying that Christians are, are going to struggle. We are. We're not Jesus. We're just being made like Him. Live like Jesus, who alone is worthy of glory and will not share His glory with any other. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, it is done. To the thirsty He will give from the spring of the water of life without payment.